Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 260th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is David Ortiz. David is the founder of Financial Chef, an independent RAA operating as a lifestyle practice serving clients in Southern California. What's unique about David, though, is the way he combines his experience as a classically trained chef with the growth of his advisory firm, which now includes driving a sprinter van with a full kitchen so he can travel to a wider range of clientele across South Florida to cook custom meals for them and then provide financial advice while they eat their freshly prepared food together. In this episode, we talk in depth about how David grew his advisory firm by leveraging his training as a chef, first by building relationships with local charities where he would provide in-house cooking for a party of 10 as a silent auction offering to get access to high-value prospects who were affluent enough to bid thousands of dollars on this donated chef services, how David then built an office space with a professional kitchen where the timing of client meetings was based on the available breakfast, lunch, and dinner sittings that restaurants use, and why David ultimately decided to make his cooking plus advice services more mobile by buying a van with a kitchen so that he could bring the food directly to his clients in what David calls the Ritz-Carlton of food trucks. We also talk about how David has evolved his financial planning services for clients, including how David has largely eschewed relying on traditional planning software and instead built his value proposition directly around the ongoing and never-ending financial planning tasks that his clients need his help to implement, how David built his own custom portals for each client through Microsoft SharePoint to help clients track their financial planning progress over time, and why David has decided to evolve his business model towards charging ongoing planning fees as a percentage of client income for his financial planning tasks support, in addition to AUM fees where his clients need their portfolios managed. And be certain to listen to the end, where David shares his own journey through the advice business, from how he made the transition from being a chef and doing a brief stint at a software company before getting started as a life insurance agent, why David ultimately decided to leave the broker-dealer world and structure his firm as an independent RA instead, and why David believes that a chef who cooks for his clients, in addition to providing them financial advice, has been so effective at deepening his client relationships. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with David Ortiz. Welcome, David Ortiz, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you very much, Michael. I'm I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today and, and... And just hear more and share more about, uh, I think it's this amazingly unique advisory firm that that you build and how you work with clients. You know, for so many of us, the, you know, we, we've learned that one of the ways that you build relationships with clients is, is not just that you spend time with them, but, but you spend time breaking bread with them. You know, I, I had learned early on to just, you know, meetings with clients are great. Meetings with clients over meals are are better, right? Just something about the 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 warmth of eating good food that that tends to to open us up a little, to make us a little more comfortable, to to expand the conversation a little bit more. And I feel like you have, I guess, taken this to the natural logical uh, extreme. You know, your 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 firm is called the Financial Chef. I know your background is as a classically trained chef. You have a, a, I guess, an, an, an RV, a, a sprinter van fitted out with a kitchen so you can actually go to your clients and cook for them while doing financial advice for them. 
I like just fascinated to hear how this, like how this evolution comes about to go from, Hey, it's a good idea to you meet with clients over meals to like, let's actually bring the meals to them, cook using your background as a professionally trained chef, and then, and then do some financial planning. Uh, like how exactly does that come about as a journey for a financial advisor? Well, yeah, it definitely took some time to mature into grow into that. But I got into this business really uh, later in life. This is my third career: food first, technology second, and then and then uh, financial services. And I fell into financial services just by accident because I worked. I was working for a small publicly traded software company in the early nineties, and. And we were developing workflow automation software for companies like Motorola and Chevron and the United States Postal Service. And like many small startups, the founder made some errors in judgment that kind of tanked the company and they were selling it off for pieces and they said you can keep your job but you have to move to Boston and I was married with two small kids and my wife basically said you're not moving or she said no your children are not moving to Boston I don't care that your name is David Ortiz we're not going to Boston and so I needed something to do and I answered this blind ad and that just sounded amazing and you know as and it was for my first employer which was uh, e- equitable actually axa equitable it was equitable at the time right before they switched over and because of course you would never go and go to an ad that says come be a life insurance salesman so it was this wonderful sales management uh, ad and i went in and and you know it sounded good i said i could do it and you know and then when you start in the business it's like oh how do i get clients or how do i get clients to like me and want to deal with me. And so I was a pastry chef for Disney World. That was my first job out of culinary school. I worked in the central commissary for Epcot. And so I decided, oh, I would bake biscottis. And I had a portable Nespresso machine, their very first machine. I had this big case. And I would go to my clients' offices, mostly was trying to deal with business owners, doctors, and I would set up shop in, in their conference room and I would break out the biscotti and set up the cappuccino machine. And, you know, we would just sit and talk about the world and all of a sudden everything became easy and the relationship just started opening up. And I said, wow, that that's really cool. I mean, and then, you know, I also would always make sure I would bake extra for the receptionist. And then any other time that I show up, I mean, it was like, David, David's here. David is here. And everybody's happy to see me. So I then said, wow, that's really awesome. So then I started. So wait, let me, let me pause you there for a moment though. So I just, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about this and, and like I'll own, maybe I'm just um, reflecting some weird baggage of my own past or life or training, but like I feel like there's this certain expectation that we have, or maybe that we put on our own shoulders about, I'll just call it in air quotes, like professionalism and what it means to be a professional and you know, a certain expectation sometimes about how financial advisors are supposed to show up, right? Certainly if you go back to our our roots and and even 20 plus years ago in the time frame you're talking about, like 
we had a lot of suits. We had a lot of ties. We had a lot of offices with a lot of mahogany, right? There was, there's a, there's a certain kind of style presentation around how financial advisors show up. And I feel like you showing up in the conference room with an espresso machine and homemade biscotti is like not, not quite on that, not quite on that theme, not quite on that style. So I, I guess like, I'm just wondering, did, did, did you ever have second thoughts about that? Did, did colleagues ever push back on you of like, David, that's not how things are done. Like, what are you doing going to your client's offices and bringing your own espresso machine? No, actually quite, quite the contrary. Uh, my, my manager at AXA, that's brilliant. Oh my God. Oh my God. So, and, and you know, South Florida is a little different because, because of all the heat down here and uh, the, the Latin flair, if you will, it's more, yeah, yes, there's lots of suits and they, they used to try and require us to wear suits, but our clients were all like, don't come here in a suit. I don't want to see you in a suit and tie. You know, we, it's I only see you sweats to believe that you're a dedicated professional. <laughs> well, or it's only the IRS or immigration that shows up in suits, you know? So, you know, you go to a business owner and they're not in suits. Maybe some of the attorneys are. So no, that, that never, that, that did not stop me. I, I felt because of just the tremendous feedback you know, from the, from the clients that I was really on to something. And, and that was, that was the very, you know, very beginning of it. And just understanding how it, it really changed things. And from there, then I got the idea that, okay, now you become my client. I'm going to go to your house and do a welcome dinner to welcome you as my client. And you invite four couples so that I do a dinner for 10 at your home where no business is talking. This is not a, it's not a, a plate liquor seminar. And it's really about me celebrating them and their decisions to, to become, you know, financially aware, whatever that would mean in, in the relationship. And it just, that was now the next thing because they're Friends would say, that's your financial advisor? I don't have a guy who does that. And and then that, you know, that really so, became the And next. so like literally just that became the onboarding process for clients. Like as a new client, I'm I'm coming to your home. If you'll open up your kitchen and I will cook dinner for you and and a couple of your friends, please invite them over and uh just let me know what your food preferences are so I can make something you all like. Correct. Correct. And, and so I, I, I never asked them like, what do you like to eat? Because they have no idea of what I could do. So it's always been, do you have any allergies and do you have any dislikes, food dislikes? So that I get that. And then if they, you know, no, no, no. So then I just, then it's all up to me. And so, so that was, that became the onboarding process. And, and, you know, that was really the, that was really it. I would then also do donate. And actually, this is probably the single biggest contributor to the success of my practice early on was that I would donate for silent auctions for chambers of commerce and community foundations. I would do a dinner for 10 at somebody's home. So what I was doing for my clients, I was now donating for silent auctions. So the charities loved me because they'd get a thousand, two thousand dollars as a as a bid. And I would go to the person's house and 
and uh, do the dinner. And I would never, I, I'm just always, there's that China wall. I never talk business. I would never say that. But they invariably, when, you know, they would bid it up and I'd go to their house and they'd say, oh, can I, oh my God, can I, can I use you again? My daughter's having a bar, bar mitzvah and can we use you for that? I said, well, you can't use me for the food, but I can manage the money that she gets from there. And 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 I would you know so I w- I was always very I guess I just you know it wasn't about it wasn't about me trying to sell somebody that's there that to me is like that's that's like uh, the the worst thing you could ever want to do, and and then I just really got known in the Coral Gables community which is where my practice really grew, and I don't know if you know Coral Gables but it's uh, it's where the University of Miami is and it's an affluent suburb of of Miami proper, and and so I became known all over Coral. Gables and I was solicited all the time for charity dinners and I would do them all the time. I was like the the best marketing I could possibly ever do. I I did a I would do a dinner for 10. It would cost me $80 for for the food. And I'd have 10 people that just were like, oh my God, this is the most incredible thing ever. And I built a relationship and and a, a, re- a reputation to the point where people would say, you know, oh my God, he's a chef. He's the chef. There's the chef. And then the the next iteration of that, and that's really so that was the first 10 years of my my career where it was all done informally and it was I was not the financial chef. I was, you know, David Ortiz, CFP or financial advisor or whatever. Well, and just I'm I'm struck by this in 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 how you frame it that you know, one of the classic things always just around marketing activities, good marketing strategies for advisors ultimately comes down to you know, b- building relationships with with you know prospects who are reasonably affluent so that you you, you know there, there's enough there there should you be able to build enough relationship to to get to do business with them. And that just when you when you live in a world of you're the most popular thing to join a silent auction, there's a really interesting self-selection process there of just you know, who's Who's out bidding up fancy dinners at at silent auctions, dropping a thousand plus dollars? Right, this isn't the like, this isn't the twenty five dollar bid. This is like the thousand dollar bid item. If you know, I just I think about like if you, when you when you consider who's probably bidding on that and able to able to drop that kind of dollars for a charity that they want to support, like pretty good odds. That's a decent prospect and if they invite their friends because it's a dinner for 10 pretty good odds that the people they invite will be people in their socioeconomic circle otherwise known as more good prospects uh just like i'm 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 really struck by this in what an incredible way you end out just very systematically in front of high quality prospects in a, in a business where a lot of advisors struggle just figuring out how do I get in front of high quality prospects? Well, that definitely was a, a factor. I, I would say, you know, in that, that I, I said, if somebody could afford a thousand dollars for me to come to their house, just to entertain their friends and they, you know, that, and I, I, that was, 
just for the food. They had to provide their own wine or whatever they were going to drink. I said, yeah, it was right. Pretty good probability there's somebody that could be in the target market I'm trying to approach. And and, and what it really did was it, it helped me on both sides because the the organization that got the thousand dollars was like you know my name when they hear my name is like oh my god he's always helped us he's always helped us he's always helped us they love you they want you back every time there's a marketing opportunity aka another silent auction they call you and tell you there's an opportunity right right Yes. And, and, and so I, I did that for a good 10 years where I I think I did over a hundred dinners, uh, for the, for the area. And it, yeah, I mean, it was certainly, it was certainly work and I, I, it helped me though, develop a lot of my style of cooking. And then one day, literally in the shower, the whole idea of financial chef as a brand came to me. And the idea, I mean, I actually, I came screaming out of the shower. My, my wife thought that I had cracked my head or, you know, I was like, I said, honey, 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 I got it. And she was like, oh my God. And, and the idea of, I, I took a restaurant that had gone out of business in Coral Gables and we remodeled it into an office. It was a small cafe and we had a commercial kitchen in the back and we remodeled the front to look like a regular office with a conference room and a couple of um, support and, and, and um, associate advisor workstations. Then that became the office of the financial chef. And what happened is that I would then start doing uh, it looked at every meal slot as a client opportunity. So we would start out with a, a breakfast at you know in the morning. So I could do a breakfast with somebody at seven or eight. Uh, we'd do a mid morning coffee, and it would be biscottis. I also I also would do scones. They became very popular, and then I would do two seatings for lunch. So I could do an eleven thirty lunch meeting and then a one o'clock lunch meeting, and then we would do like a three o'clock coffee a five o'clock happy hour and a seven o'clock dinner. So I had like six opportunities for client meetings over food every day. And I had, I had a sous chef, I had a chef, uh, an assistant in the kitchen that would do all the prep work for me and execute the recipes. And so it was uh, this commercial kitchen in the back and we're cooking up a storm and my assistant, you know, served the food and uh, the whole thing though. I was going to ask just like, where do you, where do you find the, like, if just, if you're meeting clients for the breakfast, the the mid-morning coffee, the lunch, the afternoon coffee, the happy hour, the dinner, like when do you actually find the time to go back and then do the food? So so you had a, your recipes, but then the sous chef in the back is actually helping to prepare all of it up so that you can be in meetings with with clients through the day. Absolutely. And, and I also strategically would plan out, okay, what can we serve? What can we cook? And, and I was very clear in my mind from the beginning that it wasn't about trying to make really fancy food. It was really about making spectacular food, but was deceptively easy and how, how much 
time it took to prepare things. And, and so I started actually calling myself a SWAT chef because I could go into somebody's home for one of these dinners that I would do, never have seen their kitchen, and I would just show up and we'd be done in two hours from start to finish because I figured out all of these ways to prepare food. One of my favorite methodologies is something called sous vide. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but it's a water oven. It's a precision cooker that's totally hands-off. So I always, I put so much time and energy into developing food that people would look at and just drop dead on, but we didn't spend hours and hours and hours in the kitchen because I, I was very clear in my mind that my job is not to cook for people. My job is to serve people financially and make their lives better. And the food is just the, the message is how, we, is how we communicate through that. So we did that for six years uh, that we had this wonderful place in Coral Gables. But unfortunately, what, what wound up happening is that people that wanted to do business with me but lived in the northern part of the city or way south, they wouldn't come to Coral Gables for lunch because just the driving and the traffic and the congestion in a major city in Miami is awful for that. So it limited the, the amount of people that I could really uh, have there. Be- because the whole thing was really built around like you come you come to David's office, you come to the financial chef office, we do our financial process, but you get this hosted dining experience as a part of the thing as a part of the engagement. So just it the whole point and the whole angle was you come to our office, which is problematic for any client who doesn't want to come to the office. Correct. And, and I mean, they'd want to, but I mean, like literally, you know, it's, it's some parts of Miami, it takes like an hour. It's still Miami during the day to, yep. to get there. And yep, we you know, go through the same thing here in the, in the, in the DC area, remarkably short distances take remarkably long to travel. Yes. Right. So, so that just limited it. So then the idea of going mobile came to me and, and we, and I said, wow, now I also had a huge overhead in having the restaurant slash office because I, you know, there's obviously the overhead for food and all the meals and the equipment and the maintenance and, you know, everything to run it. I was looking and saying, Hmm, you know, where, where's the balance here? And then, you know, and then I found the, the, the Sprinter idea, and it's actually an Airstream. So it's a uh, Airstream, you know, the the silver bullet Airstreams. They also make a Sprinter van version of that that was perfect for what I needed because it had a full kitchen inside and it had a little dining area with a table. So I, I like to call it the Ritz Carlton of food trucks. And, you know, I have a full kitchen inside in a private dining room. And now I do, I roll up to my client's location and they hop in. And along with our meeting, I serve them a gourmet meal. I have actually, I've really equipped the, the RV. I put in a huge electrical upgrade so that I can be cooking inside of it and not popping off breakers and running to run, have to run generators. We did have to run the generator in the beginning and that was not conducive to asking people to sign a check or give you a, you know, give you money when they're with the generator. So uh-huh. we, we put uh-huh. a, we, we put a big, so, big hey, can solar I, like, charge this thing with you guys really fast. You can get a, is that be okay? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But the, the restaurant office was 
It was really very, very successful. And we got written up in the Miami Herald. I was on the cover and public broadcasting and the local stations and everybody was very intrigued in it. And I, I always would say, you know, I have the most expensive restaurant in the world. You come, you have lunch, and you leave behind a check for a half a million dollars. <laughs> but you try to grow that half a million dollars. That's right. It's not all consumed. That. But <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. I like that. You come, you come in for a meal and you, you, you leave a half a million dollars behind. And, you know, and so it's been such an amazing journey. I, I just feel so, so blessed that I was able to put this together. And, you know, I, I think I have created the ultimate in a lifestyle practice. And, you know, just the, the whole thing about how clients relate to it, because, and, and you alluded to it, you know, talking about money is, is really stressful, right? And legacy and your dysfunctional kids and, you know, and so everyone is always tense in those financial meetings or they show up and, you know, the guy's in a suit in the, in the ivory tower. And our whole approach was as if we're sitting in your, on your kitchen table because, you know, food is the ultimate in comfort and, you know, everybody in everybody's homes, we all make important family decisions around a meal. You know, you sit with grandpa and grandpa's talking about what I want to have happen and, and all of that. So my whole idea has been to emulate that. And I just have, it's just such a different atmosphere when you are breaking bread with somebody, but it's so different than like, taking somebody to a restaurant, right? Because that, you know, that's a not, you know, that doesn't make it that, that's not there. And, and so the ability to be as if you're in somebody's home, very private, where they feel very comfortable, they're eating, they're enjoying, we're drinking a glass of wine. I, you know, I, I, I and that, I, I made sure though that they were not loopy when they signed anything. So any FINRA, any FINRA regulators, there's no inducements that were ever there. A glass of wine. A glass of wine. <laughs> yes. Yes. And so it just it just really it really helps to build that trust, that relationship. I become part of their family. And and that has been the genesis of the way I have always viewed my uh, my practice and is, you know, totally being out of the box, obviously. And and becoming part of their family. So I I have a a personal screening if you will that you can't be my client if I don't want to sit down and have a meal with you. If if I can't relate to you and you would be and I would be comfortable sitting with you and and just having a meal then you're not going to you're not going to make it as one of my clients. And, and that's, so that's always our, that's always our litmus test. And, you know, and so it just, it just really is about how you connect, how, how people open up based upon the fact that they just feel like they're at home. So help me understand a, a, a little more, just how does this transition work just in, in practice from, from chef to advisor? I mean, just do you like, do you have clients who get stuck on thinking of you as the chef and not the advisor? Or is that just, am I too in my head trying to think about this and what it's like for a, for a client or prospect sitting across from you where like you're the financial advisor, but you're also the person who cooked the meal that they're eating while they're talking about 
financial yeah. issues? Never an issue. Never, never even, never even once. More, more like just thrilled about how how cool the whole experience was. But never anybody like I don't want to do it. You're you're a cook. What do you know? Now I, I will say that I I have certainly worked very very hard to be at the top of my game educationally, and you know went and got my CFP, got my RICP. Uh, actually I will be taking the third part of the enrolled agent exam in about three weeks. And then that'll be, I'm rounding out, I guess my, my triumvirate of, uh, what I think are probably the most salient, uh, designations that give me the ability to, to really learn, have learned that. So I've, I've always made sure to work really hard to be the guy that knows stuff and that, you know, and, and when I worked in like AXA, I, I was always, uh, they asked me to teach classes and because I, I'm, I'm a perpetual student and I, a lifelong learner. And so I've always, that's never come up as an area because it was always obvious that I, I did my homework and I knew what I was talking about. So talk to us about the, like the actual financial advisor business model, like just as you, as you went through this and sounds like there were well, there were a few different iterations from the 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 chef end because you went from the 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 silent auction dinners and building your business to having the office slash restaurant space and doing that for a number of years and then transitioning into the the sprinter van version and and doing the mobile version for a couple of years. But what has this been like from the from the business model end? Like I mean, you had said you started out at Equ- Equitable, so I'm assuming some of the early years was ultimately coming back to variable universal life insurance sales because that was the thing at the time what does this look like from the business model end and how is it how has it evolved well i'm kind of ashamed that i called myself a financial advisor back then and i i know you're you're leading the charge on the whole titling of of that and you know because at the end of the day that's all they really wanted you to do was uh sell variable life insurance right they they looked at it kind of like windex from the big fat greek wedding everybody windex oh you got a pro oh put win- variable life oh you need variable life so you know, even though they said we're financial advisors, it was really you were a product salesperson. And unless you sold their products, you know, you you just, you know, that you had to do it that way. And so that was my only indications in the business. I, I didn't know anything else other than that. And that's when I, I started realizing, you know, this model is just not the the best model. I also, back in 99, in the state of Florida, CPAs could get licensed in our business. And so AXA was very big about, you know, getting getting people to uh, get licensed, to get CPAs licensed and match with advisors. And because of the relationships I had built with a couple of CPAs and food, we had them. And, and it just became obvious that you couldn't be objective and and the CPAs were, were like, well, why is it always an AXA product? Why is it always that? You know, it's like, so that, that really led to my exodus from working for a captive company and saying, there's a better way because I, I very much was trying to be the CFP and doing things the right way and not saying that they don't want to do things the right way, but their model is let's sell products. So, you know, I, I definitely moved more towards a planning based paradigm. 
you know, the, the bill, bill back rack, you know, what's important to you about money, all of the issues of the real holistic model of planning. And so we, we then moved very much into everybody does a plan. You know, we use a plan as, as a baseline, but things are normally, I, I believe, very rigid in traditional planning because you go and you ask them for a whole bunch of data and then you do a plan and you print out a, a, a book for them that becomes obsolete the moment it gets printed out because all the, all the values change and then you implement. But, you know, implementation becomes, hey, sell a product because that's the beginning and that's the baseline and now we're going to sell you something. So my my practice has, I believe, really evolved from there into something I learned from you and and uh, from your podcast, and that's agile financial planning. And, and that's really where we are today and treating it. So my, my time of being a software developer, the whole idea of agile planning and how software is developed in scrums, and we do the same thing now. So I took the idea that I learned from your podcast and said, okay, how do we, how do we do this? And so we've, we've come up with six major groups of deliverables and then we set the priorities and we have a war room that, that we've set up uh, private portals for each client and we have the major modules of that and we find out, hey, what, what are your priorities? Not what my priority is. Now, I will certainly say to them, hey, I think you need to do this, this, and this if you've missed it. I think you have exposure here. People in your situation should be aware of this, but we always start with what what's important to you what what matters to you and in what order so i i really believe now that that we have been able to fine tune this and be aligned to our clients goals and so i I work everything around what is important to them, what what are the most important things. And so we have that punch list of like urgent issues. And then once we run out of those, then we go into the important but not urgent. And then we may uh, tackle the, the remaining items that there are. And so this uh, this portal allows us to, to have a very graphical way to present to our clients, here's everything we're working on for you. And here's the order. And we use kind of also like a Kanban metaphor and move things in and out of the list, depending on what their priorities are. So I have so many questions here. I think just to start, can can you describe a little bit more just in, in your words, words you've, you've talked about agile financial planning. We, we've mentioned a few times on the, on the podcast over the years. So for, uh, for any, anybody that wants to, to learn more about it beyond the discussion we're about to have here, uh, this is episode 260. So if you go to kittis.com slash 260, we'll have links out in the show notes for some additional resources. But David, just can you describe in, in your words, like when you talk about agile financial planning, recognizing that most of the financial advisor world has no background of agile and scrum and all the rest, like what, what does agile financial planning mean to you? Nimble, the ability to react very quickly to current issues affecting the client. So what is the most pressing need for the client at that moment in time? 
what is going to give the greatest impact for the, the their financial success in the future. So we break that down into cash management, protection, accumulation and investments, uh, retirement income planning, tax management, we call the tax management journey, which is everything of proactively doing tax planning, estate planning. And then we also create something that's called the family estate organizer, where we have a whole kind of simulation of what happens when you die, where everything is, what needs to be done, what's the punch list, what do you do first, how do you, you know, from A to Z, with the idea that this, there's a big picture of everything that we could do, but it, 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 these are the major groups. And then underneath each one of those, we've started with a predefined list of uh, what we call like core topics of, of what, what are the things that, uh, like, for example, under estate planning, you know, reviewing the documents, uh, making sure that you have a power of attorney and that it's not going to fail, making sure that your beneficiary designations are all aligned. Where are the documents? What are your charitable strategies? And then we, we basically have sub tasks for every major group. So under retirement income spending, you know, we'll, we'll look at, you know, 4% rule versus uh, bucket planning, segmentation. We'll look at uh, tax planning. So we use uh, a list of plan is one of the main, uh, one of the main drivers of what we do for people. It's really one of the, one of the things that has really driven me to go and get my enrolled agent is I never agreed with what the broker dealer world would say is we don't give tax advice. You know, well, I mean, that's it's garbage. We always gave tax advice. You know, I mean, when you're telling somebody, hey, save on a pre-tax basis, that's tax advice. I'm sorry. So, so now we really have uh, gone very deep into that, and we we have this seven-step process. I've built my podcast around that, and it's it's really the things to do every day to to you know raise your income and and lower your taxes. We have planning triggers. So, you know, what happens with uh, death of a loved one, uh, retirement, a job change. I'm also, I'm also a client of another one of your businesses, uh, FP Pathfinder. My tech stack uh, somehow winds up in, I think, the kitchen's kitchen every once in a while. So, you know, cash management, all, all of the different areas. So, and we're always continuing to ask the client, what, you know, what is it that keeps you up? What, what do you worry about? So, you know, and, and part of this, like we'll, we'll do the 401k allocations for them. You know, I went and got trained as a tactical manager under Dorsey Wright. So I'm a practitioner of, of Dorsey Wright's uh, investment models. And so, you know, we, we really build this you know, holistic. I know everyone uses that holistic, but you know, we we sit there and in many respects I also consider myself to be kind of like the goalie. And I'm looking out for all of those kicks coming in and blocking them, keeping them out and keeping the keeping the team safe. I feel like I'm still not entirely clear on just how you distinguish the kind of planning you're talking about from uh, I guess I'll, I'll just call it traditional financial planning world. I mean, you, you talked about these segments of 
you know, cash flow and budgeting and protection through insurance and accumulation investments and retirement and tax and estate, which kind of fits our core CFP curriculum, fits the traditional financial planning software for a lot of advisors. I know literally fits like the sections of the plan that we print and produce and deliver to clients. But you, I feel like you're trying to describe a version of planning that's different than the traditional approach, although you're talking about a lot of the same areas. So can you help us understand more? Just what what's the difference between how you're how you're doing it and using these versus what what we traditionally do when we do our gather the data, put it in the planning software, do the plan and deliver it where I feel like we also cover these areas. No, no doubt that you cover these areas. And, and I'm not saying that we do anything better than than other people. I think we just take we take it from a different view, meaning that we have a, a predefined checklist of everything that we go through, and the planning software is just one subset of that, as opposed to what I, and maybe it's just what I've changed in my own practice. It used to be that e-money was the you know, the focal point of everything. And this was the plan. And so you you did that rather than the all of the deliverables that come out of the plan, all of the things. So, you know, doing a plan is not, you know, then looking and reviewing at somebody's 1040 and saying, hey, where where can we do micro conversions? Where where can of Ross, where where can we do that? So I think the big difference in our mind, in my mind, is we don't use the printed plan or the plan as the focal point. That's just one data point within the entire process. It's more of where your general contractor, and here's the punch list of everything to get your house built. And you know this is the order that things go in. And so does that mean in practice, when you go into client meetings and you're presenting a plan or recommendations that literally like the the main thing you go in with is a page of the issues we're going to be talking about and focusing on and dealing with the the, the proverbial contractor punch list, as opposed to going in with the the plan, the planning software output. Yes, absolutely, and and really the plan generally only comes into place when we're doing the retirement income planning. That's cash flow based, goal based, whatever whatever that may that may be, but. You know, it's like, uh, so, uh, you know, under the protection aspect of it, you know, what, what are we looking at? So we're, we're also reviewing property and casualty for people. We're reviewing their, we get involved in annual enrollment of their employers, showing them what are the best of the, the benefits for their situation, which health plan, which deductible cash management, setting up software for tracking budgets using things like Truebill or, or tiller sheets or mint. And you're into that level of, of, of work with clients using tools like, like tiller for cash flow planning and Truebill to, to manage all those wonderful subscriptions. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. So we, we certainly, yeah, all, all of that, you know, so we'll, we'll also, for example, take the estate planning aspect of it and we'll take their, you know, there's a, unfortunate phenomena that uh, a lot of financial powers of attorneys documents are rejected by 
financial institutions. And we're huge advocates of uh, vetting those or, 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 or trialing that power of attorney before you need it. Because specifically on a financial power of attorney, it it doesn't come into play until you need it, and then it can be too late. And I've seen this happen where, you know, dad gets incapacitated and, you know, he was the sole breadwinner and he has a big 401k plan and mom didn't have the power of attorney. She needed money and she calls up and they say, oh, you know, hey, I'm, I'm Dan's wife and he's incapacitated. I need to take money out. Okay. Put Dan on. No, he can't, he can't come to the phone. And just, so, just said he's incapacitated. That's uh, exactly. And, and, but I have a power of attorney. Oh, great. Send it in. So you send it in and then they come back to his, oh, no, no, no. We need it on our own paperwork. We need it notarized every two years. And so we go through and do that. And that's all part of the process is, is, you know, taking, okay, where are your financial institutions? What are their rules for powers of attorney? We then document that and we put that in as, as part of our, our process. It's another one of the checklist of deliverables to make sure that, you know, when that, when that happens, if that happens, we, we already know about that. So I, I'm, I'm struck just as you're, you're describing this and I, I, I see now why you just, you've been kind of framing this as, as, as checklists that, that you built out your, just your checklist of all the different things that we might be doing for clients in all of these different areas. And, and it sounds like just, you're literally running the checklist of, Here's all the different things that we might touch on, and you know if it if it applies to the client, then we have that conversation. If it doesn't, obviously you get to move on pretty quickly. But but just you built out your list of, I'm almost thinking of it as here's all the different ways we can add value to you, Mister or Mrs. Client, and and you just start going through the list. And if you've accumulated enough things on the list, there's there's always stuff to find. There's always things to do to help. Absolutely correct. I'm a huge tech guy. So we build mind maps of, of all of the core concepts of, of this. And so what we are providing to our clients is actually an interactive series of, of visual mind maps for each one of the major groups. And so under the tax planning map, it will then have the tentacles that come out, which is, you know, what is the asset, asset location of everything? What do we do in an annual tax? planning meeting? What do we look for as tax loss harvesting? Uh, here's how we review your 1040. So we have all of these set up. And again, not everything is applicable to every client, but we try to have this over overarching list of everything that you could possibly have in any one of these. And then we apply the filter of what makes sense for the client and what is the what are the most important priorities of the client to do this. And then all of that comes into like the the page of recommendations that you walk into the client meeting with. The the here's the important that we're working on, here's the important but not urgent we're getting to rest, and here's the Here's the rest. Yes. Is that literally what it what it looks like? Like just there's a, yes, a, a big have, old page of recommendations kind of sorted into three groups and we just say, here's all the stuff we're looking at because you populated it from your own checklists and we just start talking through like, okay, what do you want to tackle this meeting? What do you want to tackle next meeting? And, and we're just going to keep working through the list and that's the planning process. 
Yes, and we start out by trying to find out what's the most urgent to them to start with so that we know that we get the biggest bang for what they feel for their buck by, you know, those things that are, that are just glaring that need to be addressed from the beginning. And then we work through. So again, like building a house and, you know, okay, here's the punch list. Okay. So now we're working on uh, cash management. Okay. So here's the emergency fund. Uh, are you, you know, are, what's your debt analysis, all, all of that. And so I feel it's, different than maybe a financial the plan using e-money or something as a, as the the baseline where you've just got this huge book and it's like okay well where do we start type of thing so so i don't necessarily start from having to do a plan first the pl- we will do some kind of a plan whether it's a, a retirement income plan an accumulation plan an investment uh, policy statement but the process doesn't happen the same way every single time for every client everybody's clients everybody's experience uh, timeline is a little bit different so now talk to us about you had mentioned i think you have framed it as a a, a war room private portal for each client that I guess that you're using to anchor a lot of this information. So can you talk to us more about what is this war room client portal? So this is uh, this is something we're just rolling out and it it is taking the idea of all of these tasks and and having it as if you were in on a in, in a war or campaign and you know you got all these sticky notes that are up on the board and you're moving them you're moving them around and at any one time a client can go into any one of the major headings uh, estate planning tax planning and see where what are the sub items under each one of those and what is it that's what are we working on? So, I mean, literally we could say, oh, let's pause the estate planning right now and let's go look at protection. And then, so we are able to shift the gears and not that we've forgotten about estate planning, but we now have this aspect. So every portion of the plan of the overall planning has its it stands on its own in many respects and so we can go in and, and the client can see okay we're waiting on this uh, this is the task that they have this is what I have and the goal here is also for me at at the end of a year in an engagement with a client to say this is everything we've done for you this is you know this is what we did this year this is what we're going to do next year so I really moving my my practice to a fee planning fee for everyone we're moving away from the model of AUM and again something I've learned from you and we are charging fees based on income and so I I charge 2% of annual income as it is on line 9 on the 1040 so part of it is they send me the 1040 we do the analysis there anyway of course we tell them everything up front that you know we take 2% of that we bill monthly in arrears so it's a monthly I like to call it the the Netflix model of financial planning subscription based planning and that's what makes things very sticky because as opposed to in my opinion opposed to doing a plan once and charging a one planning fee well I've done a plan now what do you charge for so so this by by us 
always working and, and keeping to improve and what are we doing, it keeps them sticky. I'm sticky to them because we're, we're constantly doing things for them. And so again, part of that, and part of that is like doing the, the allocation of 401ks. And what I have found is that by moving to a income-based compensation system, now I can work with uh, the Henrys, right? Uh, High earners, not rich yet, people that maybe have tons of equity compensation coming down the road that need planning, that need to do things, but or, or maybe that all their money is tied up in their 401k. And so we are really disjointing or, or removing the AUM planning model and moving towards the income. Because what I like to tell people is we're impacting your income. Everything we do is to give you more income now through less taxes or in the future. So what we should be aligned to that. Now we do obviously charge an AUM fee if we're going to be managing the assets in our RIA, but we don't have to. And and this is a way that I can be paid and 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 provide value to my clients and it's based on what we're doing as a plan. I'm struck just the the way you describe the 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 client portal and the like these are the tasks they have in these various areas that you're working on estate planning protection cash flow etc you know, these are the tasks i have at the end of the year you can kind of summarize all summarize up all the tasks and and show them like here's here's what we've done for you here's what we accomplished together this year i uh, just say there there's this i don't know there's this label that's coming in my uh, coming in my head of, of just like financial planning as t- as financial task management that just it, it feels like literally the whole center of your planning process is just task oriented right like the 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 topic areas are checklists of tasks the the portal is tracking the tasks the plan output for clients are just here's all the different tasks here's what we're working on here's what you're working on with with the sort of natural limiter of clients will just only do so much at any one time. So you're never getting through the task list quickly. You're always chipping away at it. Life happens, which usually means new things come onto the task list from time to time as well. And and just that that that's the planning process and experience for you is is just continuously looking at the list of tasks that are out there, new tasks that have cropped up, working through them incrementally because no one gets to all of them immediately and 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 that's the planning work is that a fair characterization absolutely absolutely you know i like to say i'm always working for my dinner right i i I mean because we we do this on a fee basis there's no contract it's not like uh you know here's the planning fee it's you know so if you're six months in and you're not happy no harm no foul we you know we move on and so we're and and we're more and more developing things that we're doing each year, every quarter, every half year, because we've seen so many benefits plans over the years, we know how to help clients understand, okay, this health insurance plan versus the other, you know, or the 401k. And so part of what they get in the, in our service is the asset allocation. And again, using a tactical model in many, in many respects, uh, based on a lot of the Dorsey Wright's teachings is, is based, you know, that's part of part of what we do. 
So uh, it's continuous, a continuous modeling of that. And I guess just can you help me visualize a little more? I know it's it's hard because we're on a podcast, but just can you describe just what does this portal look like? Like I mean, just what do I see when I'm a client and I've and I've logged into this thing that you've created? So it basically uh, it comes up and it says the Agile Financial Planning Dashboard, and then there are all these tabs across the bottom. Each one of the tabs is the different areas of the plan, so cash management, protection, accumulation. So you can click into each one of these at any time, and it will take you to the underlying mind map, if you will, and then there you see this tree. And so under, you know, legal documents, okay, there's the four steps. So, you know, or the the documents, okay, here's the trust, here's the will of financial power of attorney. And then you can click back and go into the next one. So I, I also believe very much that clients don't, when I'm doing traditional financial planning, I don't know any client that ever read the plan. We printed it out as advisors and we were so, you know, so happy about it. And they I was very proud of mine. Spent a lot of time banding that thing. <laughs> exactly. I did. I did. Very proud of it. Put a lot of love, blood, sweat, and tears into those plans. And, and and they don't read it, right? And so, and a lot of it is also because of of the whole compliance aspect of what's needed for it. So, you know, what we're trying to give to people is that one page financial plan, if you will. But each one of these modules are broken down into really being able to look at a mind map and see, okay, here are the here are the main groupings and then the branches coming off of the map. So it's just very simple in its presentation. So are, are these, I mean, just when you talk about mind maps, is this like a mind map of the client situation created for each client? Or is this more of the the, the task like just uh, the checklist of the different tasks that you have are organized for clients as a mind map. So it it there is a template that we use, and then it gets customized to each client. And some things might be turned off for you know that are not that are not necessarily part of that. So not applicable, if if you will. And it's really just for a client to be able to to have you know, at any one time a check-in and, oh, hey, what are, what are we doing? Oh, what, where, what did we do? We also have built out a document library as part of that where we, we organize all of the documents for them. And now we're, we're also you know, uh, putting in there uh, each meeting, what we did at the meeting, where we left it. So again, so that everything is just very transparent and everybody knows what we're all working on. And so, like, where does this portal come from? I mean, I, I, is this a, a tool, an application in advisor space? Is this a, a tool outside of advisor space you co-opted into your advisory firm? Is this a thing you just built from scratch? Like, where does, what are you using to actually make this happen? 
So we built it in Microsoft SharePoint. We, we run our practice on uh, Office 365. And so part of that is for my $15 a month per user subscription, we have access to share. Everybody can get a SharePoint and we have OneDrive. And so we built this on top of it. We use uh, Mind Manager, uh, which is called MindJet, MindMap. And that has this uh, great functionality to be able to to be integrated into into SharePoint and into Microsoft Teams. We set up a team for each client that we do this with. Now, I am not doing this for hundreds of of clients. I have a small, very boutique-y, if you will, practice. And, you know, so so this is on a kind of a concierge level. You know, there's only so many seats on the bus that we're going to be filling. Again, you have to fit into our world of who we are, who we're comfortable sitting down and having a meal with because I feel we put so much into the clients. We're always on call. We're always, always available. You know, I don't really have boundaries for my clients. Well, I do have boundaries. If I'm, I'm out in my RV and traveling, you know, my, uh, I maybe not get back to them right away, but you know, I, I believe I have the ultimate in lifestyle practice because lifestyle and practice meld together. So I guess just from a purely technical perspective, like, uh, if you're running all this through SharePoint, which is kind of built built for collaboration across teams, and and you're and you're communicating by teams, so so does that basically mean like just you you've got like a a Microsoft domain where every single client gets a like a Microsoft license under your domain, so that each of them can be pulled into your your SharePoint space, and then you use all the Microsoft permissioning uh, controls to make sure they they only access their space, and they don't access anybody else's space, and like is is that the structure to actually implement it? Correct. So so the beautiful thing about SharePoint is is you create the template once and then you and then we just make a copy of that. And so we have that template and so you know now for the kids family we make a copy of that and then they have their own login and and it's their own site and everything is is separate. So you know you, you can have hundreds and hundreds in SharePoint alone I mean corporations have hundreds and hundreds of subsites and so forth. So I said, why can't I do that, you know, for the number of clients that we're doing this with? It kind of reminds me a little bit of Nudge, which I know is just an, another planning tool made, you know, made by planners for planners that I think was similar. They're not as much on the mind map end and, and built their own tools, but similar, you have like a very client financial planning task oriented system. So they call it Nudge because you nudge your clients. It, it, it reminds me of kind of a similar vein. It's It's this Sort of financial planning value through ta- through financial task management and just helping clients keep on track and accountable to actually doing them because you know the the world would be in a very different place if everybody always did all their task lists instantaneously on their own but that's not what happens in the real world so a lot of value to be created just by helping clients stay on track for their tasks right. And it's a thing that when we're in a meeting together, you know, a Zoom meeting or whatever, um, actually we use a Teams meeting, uh, that, you know, we have we have the mind map up and a client can see everything that we're working on. Okay, and here it is. And it's simple, you know, we're trying not to make it complicated, not to make it overwhelming and just give them a visual, you know, that we have a plan. And 
And out of curiosity, just as you talk about like all these different like financial planning tasks across the different domains, the checklist you've got for them, like where did that come from? I mean, is that just a list you've built and honed for yourself having done this for 20 plus years and you just keep track of all the things you've done for all the clients and every time there's a new thing you add it to the list and over time it's like we got a we got a big old checklist of all of our financial planning issues. Yes. And I, I collaborate with another uh, colleague of mine and uh, he and I have, have kind of developed this list together and it's, it's uh, nothing is cast in stone. So we're, we're always looking, okay, what do we need to change and, and do on there? What we're trying to do is just have very impactful items that are going to be on there, you know, like reviewing the, the beneficiary designation. We're doing something that we call the family succession plan. You know, what happens when, when you die, you know, what's going to happen, you know, too often people that, you know, the survivors, they don't know what to do. So we have a full checklist of, okay, you know, even to like, here's how you do an obituary and, you know, here's where everything is. And, you know, in the first 30 days you have to do this and 60 days you do this and you know, set up a probate estate, you know, all of those things. And so never really seeing that as part of a financial plan, right? That's, that's, not, you know, that's not coming out of e-money. And so what we're trying to do is make it real world. What does a person have to do to stay on top of all of the different aspects that they want to handle in their financial life? You know, maybe I'm called the financial chef, but I also like to call myself a financial maitre d' because you sit at a table and I figure out what you need and, you know, we kind of serve that to you as well. So how does this work from a, a, a a client servicing perspective, like just all these tasks on an ongoing basis, all the interaction around it, like how often are you meeting with clients to just to do all this, to deal with all, all this? Like how does, how does that service model work in the practice? So what I like to say is that in the beginning, we're going to meet as often as I, I can meet with my clients and we're going to knock things out. And in the beginning, we'll have lots of meetings and there's no set one, you know, I have a young couple that, that are super busy and, and, you know, they're doing extremely well and need all kinds of guidance. And, you know, maybe we'll talk to them every two weeks, every three weeks. And the idea is to then after, let's say the first year and, and we've tackled all these, then get on some kind of a schedule. Definitely going to be a quarterly check-in for the for the review of the accounts, for the allocations for the 401k. There's going to be a year-end meeting for tax planning. So then it becomes more of a predictable service schedule. And do you actually have like a, a structured service calendar of how those meetings line up through the year? Or is it more reactive, adaptive just to wherever clients are? I've been trying to develop them by co-oping stuff that I see on your site. <laughs> Fantastic. That's why we put it out there. <laughs> yes. So as you're going through meetings and, and like quarterly check-ins, is this kind of getting back to the original model? Is this like and you're and you're out to the house cooking for them every quarter to do these meetings on an ongoing basis? Is this more of a blend like we do most of our check-ins by Zoom virtually, but once a year I'm gonna come out and we're gonna cook and spend time together? Like how does the 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 cadence of those meetings tie back to the the financial chef framing? Like I'm just wondering, is 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 every is every client meeting a meal this way, or is that more selective? 
Well, it used to be that way, but um, like I said, pesky pandemic was probably not helpful from the from a meat meat in person <laughs> to break bread thing. Especially right, taking a mask off and like eating with people, and yeah, so we, we're not we haven't done that. But I I do, and we have done actually where I pull up in the RV and we drop off a meal, and I do the Zoom meeting from their parking lot. And so they're, they're eating, I'm eating and we're doing the meal. We're just not in the same room. And, and actually what I have found is that I really enjoy the zoom aspect of presenting, right? So it used to be you're in person and everything was done on paper or or something, but you know, we've all now done all these team meetings and there. So we kind of run a team meeting all the time. Uh, Even if we're in person, I'm running a team meeting, you know, trying to do everything on the screen. I I don't like printing paper. So, so take us back now to the, the business model end and just how, how this adds up. So you had said you were more assets under management. You're moving in more of a percentage of, of income model now, just two percent of, of line nine on the on the tax return, which is which is just the the gross income before deductions line for anyone who doesn't have their tax return handy. So like just two percent of the gross and that and that's the deal. So I guess a few things I'm wondering, like, is the model now only percentage of income or if they have assets, are you also doing a percentage of assets or does one offset the other? Like, what does the model actually look like at this point? Right. So my my preferred model or my, you know, if, if I have my druthers, you pay a fee for the ongoing services. And if you choose to use us for asset management, then you also pay the asset management fee. There's no discount from that. There's not, oh, you get a half price. Uh, you know, we, we, we believe very much in the value that we're bringing to the table. So 2% of income for the planning work. Are you? What does AUM fee look like? I mean, are you a called pr- traditional air quotes one percent of AUM for yeah, roughly, portfolio we, side? So two yes. percent of income for the planning work, one percent of of assets for the asset management work, and and clients engage whichever ones they want to engage with. Yes, and and when you do two percent of income in that environment, like how how does that get set up and and paid? I mean, is that a they? They pay you once a year. You do it quarterly. Do you like pull it from their investment accounts if they're AUM with you? Do you take it all the way down to monthly? Like, I think AUM we're all used to billing on a quarterly basis out of an account that we've got. But how how does how does two percent of income work in practice? We bill monthly in arrears, so uh, which I also do with my AUM fee. So we're you know we always bill monthly in arrears. So we've set up through our accounting software uh, recurring invoices, and the clients have the capability to pay via credit card or ACH debit, and the bill goes out to them every month, and they pay it. They pay it automatically, and you know, and that's how that's how it basically gets done. And so you, so like pull out a tax return, multiply line nine by 2000, by 2%, divide by 12. And that's what I'm going to be invoicing you for every month for the next 12 months until we get your next tax return. And then we'll recalculate this. Yes. Okay. And just what does a typical client look like in practice or just, you know, if you work with some high income folks, two percent of income gets to be a pretty big number. If you work with some retired folks, and you know we're like being tax savvy about minimizing their 
income for tax purposes, we can we can get income pretty low for a retiree, which is not not necessarily helpful when you're billing a percentage of income. Like, is we the, do have a minimum. Okay, so what's the minimum, and just how does the what's the typical client that you're applying this to in practice? So the minimum is three hundred dollars a month. So you know that that's that's the minimum. Uh, now, not every client falls into this, right? So I do have some legacy clients. We have some clients that are just have limited services. So we may do some smaller subset of this. Right. For, we all have a handful of our exception clients for right, various reasons that we're doing something a little different from, but this is really the, the way we're going. So, you know, I have clients making uh, 200,000 a year. I have clients making a million four a year. I've got, you know, and in between there. So, you know, I've got clients making six, 700,000 a year. They, they don't have a lot of assets yet, but they have a lot of income and a lot of needs and they're thrilled to pay, you know, they're, they're like, this is awesome. Recognizing like someone who makes $600,000 a year, like it's a $12,000 a year planning fee. Like that's a, yes, it's a bigger number than a lot of advisors charge for their asset management clients. Okay. So what surprised you the most about just building your own advisory business and all the evolutions over the past 20 odd years? Just well, how liberating it is when you're not under a broker dealer, and that you're you're not you know that somebody's idea of compliance, uh, how it relates to your practice, doesn't really make sense, you know. And and I'm very very obviously very compliance oriented as well. It's also a compliance principle. We you know we have a, a you know a compliance firm that's our consultants. We're you know we're very on top of it, but that. You know, we're just doing the right things for clients all the time, all the time. So surprising to me is how easy it really is to run a practice the right way. Now, of course, my practice is it's just me, not adding other advisors. My daughter works with me in the practice. Ultimately, I think she'll take over the practice. But you know the whole the whole idea of it is is that you can have a wonderful life, really impact people, and and make a, make a very good living, and and feel that you have you know left the place better than than how you found it. And so, what's surprising to me is that how the financial industry puts people into that model, into that other mold, and you know it's got to be done this way, and you you know you you can't give tax advice, and you can't do this, and you know, and at the end of the Today, it's always about them protecting their franchise, whereas I'm protecting my client's franchise and and I'm on their side of the table as opposed to you know what the the, the larger firms require. So just is that the difference at the end of the day that that in the well, I guess in in the large firm environment they were protecting their franchise, even if that means they're protecting it from you and the mistakes you might make when it's your when it's your business for a better or worse. It's, it's your franchise. You want to protect you from yourself, but that that's a little more straightforward because you you are you and you look yourself in the mirror and you don't want to blow up your own business. Well, well, yes. And starting just with the whole thing, I've always had this thing of like having to explain to clients why everybody is not a fiduciary. You know, my mom taught me to be a fiduciary when I was 10 years old. You know, it was like, you always do the right thing for the other person in their best interest. You know, and so like, trying to explain to clients the different model of the broker dealer world versus the the fiduciary world it's they're like amazed to hear that 
they don't have to do what's in my best interest. Like, uh, it's a long story. My mother always also used to say, if you tell the truth, you don't have to have a good memory. And so it always has been about, you know, just doing, doing the right things. And if you're, if you're just out to do the right things for people, your practice runs smoothly. Of course, we're all going to make mistakes, right? And, but there's, you know, a mistake and then there's no, you, you did something evil. And I think part of the problem I always used to say is that, you know, the, the, the issue with the broker dealers is that they have to make their systems to the lowest common denominator. So they got to put things in for the yokel who's, you know, always screwing things up. And so the person who's doing things the right way pays the price for the person who doesn't. So what was the low point for you on this journey? You know, I, I think maybe the low point was when I realized that it, you know, that the world, the the old world was about selling products, and that I was part of that, and and that you know, you you had these quotas, and you had to make these numbers, and why aren't you making these numbers, and you know, and that I just did not ever feel good about about that. But you know, I I've had a I just had a tremendous career. I've been so blessed. So was there in a like. An event, a moment, a, like a, a thing that happened that that made that a transition for you. I don't think there's one particular thing that made that a particular thing. I like to think I'm a self-actualizing person, and so I've just always been on this quest to to get better. You know, some people say, "Well, if it's you know if it's not broken, you know, why try to fix it?" And my philosophy is everything's broken. <laughs> you always got to keep fixing, always got to keep improving. You know, nothing stays the same. It's always everything is changing around it, and to me that's what makes it so so exciting is is that things do always change. So, is there anything that you wish you'd done differently in this journey? Like anything you you know what you know now you wish you could go back and tell you from 10, 20 years ago? Would never have gone into the broker-dealer world. How would you have started instead then? Maybe would have gotten out of it sooner. I will say that I did get good training, uh, and I took advantage of the training and being coming a CFP and, and so forth. And yes, it probably would have been harder unless you know going into an RIA-only type of firm. You know, So that may have been something differently to have done. I don't know that that's that would have been real a realistic thing because you know, I was 37 when I got into the business and you know where do you start? So I am thankful that they did have a program for me to to be a track to run on. I just don't know that the model of what their ultimate motivation was really wasn't about you know helping people. In my opinion, it was really you know we're a product company, we sell stuff. So what advice would you give? newer advisors coming into the industry today i guess you could be could be younger folks coming out of college or or career changers coming in as you did i would try and you know if i if i knew today i would try to find a financial planning firm that i believed in their values and and the way things are done and to go in under that fiduciary fee-based model from really from the get-go. So as we wrap up, this is a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is even just the word means very different things to different people. And so as, 
as you built this successful career for yourself, as you'd framed it a, a successful lifestyle practice for yourself. So I understand where the business is, but how do you define success for yourself at this point? Well, to, to, to me, the, the biggest success and satisfaction I get is, is knowing that I have just helped so many families and that, that you know, un, unfortunately, I've had clients die young and, you know, I then kind of stepped in and taken over helping the family and, you know, just knowing how worse off they would be without me and the things that I do and how I hear from the the widows in these cases. There are unfortunately multiple ones of those that are younger. Some have died of COVID, some have died of cancer. Just the fact that that I'm making a real difference in these people's lives. And and that's what I get just, I mean, to me, that's success. Uh, and the fact that I get paid on top of that and that I, I live this wonderful lifestyle of being able to be anywhere and at any place and at any, 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 any time and being able to, to make impacts. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much, David, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.